0: Immigration Advocates
1: Network podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to the Getting Started With podcast for pro bonos, an Immigration Advocates Network project. My name is Dina Nott, and I am the Volunteer and Community Education Coordinator and an AmeriCorps VISTA at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Andrew Craycroft, the Staff Attorney at Immigrant Legal Resource Center who will tell us about working with immigrant children. Before joining ILRC, Andrew worked at Staten Island Legal Services representing clients in affirmative and defensive immigration matters and at the Unaccompanied Minors Program of Catholic Charities Community Services in New York, representing detained and released unaccompanied minors in removal defense. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Hi,
2: Dina, thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you for being here. So, to get started, what has led you to specialize in advocacy involving immigrant children?
2: So, I went into law school not really knowing what I wanted to do. Spring of one all year, I was looking for volunteer opportunities and found one answering a hotline at Capital Area Immigrant Rights Coalition, NDC. And it was a hotline that people in detention used to contact attorneys, and that really introduced me to what the immigration system was and just how deeply flawed the deportation system that we have is. I was especially shocked to learn that you could be jailed and deported without even being guaranteed an attorney. So from there, I started to learn more about immigration law and I did the immigration clinic at my school and after that decided that I wanted to do direct representation. So when I started practicing, I was especially interested in Asylum work and representing clients who were
1: detained,
2: I initially worked with adults in ICE detention centers, particularly those that had mental health concerns or involvement with the legal system. And this is also the fall of 2014, and all summer while I was studying for the bar exam, I was saying stories about the arrival of large numbers of unaccompanied children. And it was very disheartening to see how it was covered in the media, uh, portraying the issue as a border crisis, the use of the term "surge," which ended up sticking and is now kind of the go-to label for any news stories about young people arriving at the border. And it was even more disheartening to see that the administration's response was to expand family detention centers and speed up deportations. So I then found an opportunity at Catholic Charities in New York for a position working with Detained unaccompanied minors who are detained in the Office of Refugee Resettlement or ORR detention center, uh, which are known as shelters. Uh, I was drawn to the role since it would involve doing team work as well as asylum. Even though I was a recent law graduate, I had some familiarity with those aspects of the job, but I really didn't know a whole lot about working with children or youth specifically, or about special immigrant juvenile status, which is one of the primary forms of relief for unaccompanied minors. So. I was a bit nervous taking on this job, uh, but I was lucky enough to join a team of incredible advocates who was able to learn a lot from the attorneys, paralegals, and social workers about how to work with and effectively represent young people. And when I started working with child clients, I found that work to be both incredibly rewarding and uniquely challenging. A big part of that challenge is that the immigration system treats children like small adults, essentially, like uh, adults in the deportation system, they're not guaranteed an attorney, and uh, even though they're afforded some minimal legal protection, they're essentially expected to navigate the process more or less the same way that adults do and are held to the same standards. So even though I didn't initially think that I would be doing this kind of work, it turned out to be very much the kind of work that I'd been hoping to do when I graduated law.
1: All right. Great. Thank you for telling us a little bit about your background.
0: Who are the child clients a pro bono attorney is likely to end up working with and what backgrounds do they come from?
2: So it's kind of hard to to give an answer to that. Um, In my own practice, I've had clients from a lot of different places and a pro bono attorney may end up working with a young person from just about any country in the world. Uh, That said, the vast majority, uh, about 85 to 95 percent of the uh, unaccompanied children in the ORR system are from El Salvador, Guatemala, or Honduras. Many young people come because they're playing violence. Uh, This could be violence from gangs or organized crime groups, but it could also be state violence by law enforcement or domestic violence within the family. There are a lot of reasons why a young person may come to the United States. They may be coming to reunite with a parent or relative who's already here and they might no longer have a caretaker in their home country. Young people who are LGBT may be coming because they face discrimination in their their home country or persecution. And uh, young people who immigrate to the U.S. in general can come really from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, a lot of the uh, unaccompanied children that I've worked with tend to be older, usually teenagers. But around the time that the Trump administration began separating families, we started to see a lot more children under 10 who were put system after being separated from their parents, some young people may have large gaps in their formal education or may have had to leave school at a young age to begin working while others may have fully completed their high school or, or the equivalent in their home country. Many young people have had very different experiences with the adults in their lives. Uh, some of them may have lived with both of their parents until coming to the United States uh, while others may have mostly lived with other relatives or caretakers or they may be coming out to reunite with a parent that they haven't seen in several years. So it's really hard to say what to expect in terms of uh, what a young person's background may be, and that's why it's very important to have a culturally competent approach that's really centered on the individual client and their own
1: background.
0: What are the major differences someone may encounter when working with immigrant children uh, versus working with immigrant adults?
2: So young people have very different developmental levels and needs than adults. Young people are still developing a lot of critical cognitive, psychological, and biological functions, and all of those can impact the ways in which they can communicate and respond. Younger children especially will have a different sense of time and might find it more difficult to put events in chronological order or to give exact dates. Generally, young people have shorter attention spans than adults, so it's often necessary to
1: schedule shorter
2: meetings with them or make sure that they know that they can take breaks during the meeting. Younger children can also be susceptible to suggestion and may want to offer an answer to a question that they believe that the person asking it would like to hear. So for that reason, it's important to remember to phrase questions in in an open-ended way and make sure that you're not hinting at or um, suggesting an answer. And then young people may also have a, a hard time understanding the immigration process or immigration proceedings in general. And this is also because it's very complicated. And even for adults, even for adult attorneys, it's a very difficult process to understand. But for young people especially, it may be hard for them to distinguish the roles of different adults in the process, including who you are and what it means that you are their attorney. They may see you as another adult or potentially another authority figure, and so it's very important to communicate exactly who you are and what your role is. And these differences can really come up in all parts of the representation. Uh, so you may have to adjust your communication style, the format of your meetings, and even the case's overall timeline to the extent that it's in your control uh, based on uh, what
1: your client's development level and
0: what are the unique obstacles a lawyer may encounter when working with immigrant children?
2: So there are a lot of challenges that come with representing young people. The main category of obstacles comes from the fact that immigration law doesn't really afford many special protections to uh, children and other young people. There are some legal protections for unaccompanied minors especially, but they're largely expected to navigate the system like small adults. So it's pretty jarring to be in court sitting at the respondent's table with a a child client whose feet don't even reach the floor and have the judge ask them, how do you plead to the allegations in the notice to appear? As though they're talking to an adult who fully understands the process and and is expecting them to enter a plea as an adult would. Um, But that's really the immigration system for young people in a nutshell. There's no concept of best interest of the child as there are in family law, and other areas of law that affect young people. In um, in deportation proceedings, there's very little recognition of the fact that younger children may not even have the capacity to understand what a deportation proceeding is. So as an attorney, even though you can control your communication and approach to the attorney-client relationship, you also have to help the client navigate the inflexible standards,
1: deadlines, and requirements of the immigration system.
0: What role do a child's parents or guardians play when it comes to working with an immigrant child client? And how can this role change based on a particular situation?
2: So a young person's parent or guardian can sometimes play a significant role in the case. And obviously this will depend on who the adults are in in this person's life or um, who really is their, their caretaker, how old they are there are some younger people who might already be living on their own and not really have a caretaker in the US to take care of them and they uh, may largely be navigating the process on their own whereas you may have a younger client who is living with a parent and is really dependent on them as a caretaker uh, so for a younger child you'll probably need to communicate pretty extensively with their parent or caretaker to ensure that they can bring them to meetings or Uh, make sure that they can come to court hearings. Uh, Especially if their adult caretaker is a parent, they may be eligible for a form of release that could ultimately benefit the child. So it's important to know a lot about their immigration history and potential eligibility for release as well. And then for a, a special immigrant juvenile status case, you may need that parent or caretaker to apply for a custody or guardianship over the child, and you may need to work closely with them on that. But you need to remember that the child is your client. And that's something that the child and the caretaker need to know as well. You should also make sure that you interview the child separately from their adult and make sure that they know about confidentiality because there may be parts of their story that their caretaker is unaware of and that the child might not want to have communicated to their caretaker and often this can be a part of their story that really impacts their eligibility for relief and it's important for you to know about.
0: In immigration law generally, trauma often comes into play as people seek to get away from dangerous situations in their country of origin or elsewhere. Specific to this conversation, what role does trauma play in working with immigrant children?
2: So trauma comes into play very frequently. Unfortunately, a lot of young people who immigrate to the United States have survived traumatic experiences. Uh, Trauma can shift the way that someone understands themselves, other people, and the world around them. It can have a very pronounced uh, emotional impact, uh, but beyond that, it can also have physical, even physiological effects, and especially for young people, it can have a strong impact on child development. For that reason, it's really important to recognize the signs of trauma. They can include intense fear or anger, but could also manifest as avoidance, including maybe missing meetings with their advocate. There are also manifestations of trauma that can look like indicators of credibility issues. So someone talking about an especially traumatic experience may have a completely flat affect when they're talking about it. And then trauma can also affect memory and make it harder for to details or remember specific dates or, or orders of events
0: and what can a lawyer do to handle this trauma responsibly when it comes up
2: so one really challenging part of this work is that our immigration laws and policies are designed in a way where often being eligible for relief turns on uh, vulnerability and, and victimization, uh, the experiences that have caused uh, the most trauma and harm to someone are often the experiences that are central to their final claim or their SIJS claim, whether they or these or about So as attorneys, we're put in this role where we have to gather all of the information and in details about these very traumatic experiences to be able to effectively represent our clients. And that's why having a trauma-informed approach is especially important. There's a lot that goes into being a, a trauma-informed practitioner, probably way too much to cover here. Uh, but there are a lot of good resources available with more details and, and information. One example, just to, to give one, is a guide from the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services called Working with Refugee and Immigrant Children, Issues of Culture, Law and Development. I think it's from the late 90s, but it's still a very valuable. But there are a lot of other good sources of information, and there are a lot of practitioners who lead trainings on this topic, which I highly recommend attending. With that caveat, I can share a few general tips. First, you should gather as much information as possible prior to interviewing your client. So if you have, for example, a summary of their intake or any other details about their case, you should review them so that you can be aware of any trauma, abuse, or neglect that they might have faced. Uh, You should also choose an appropriate setting for your interviews where the client will feel the most comfortable. Uh, You should also start out by building rapport and earning your client's trust before talking about these experiences. Uh, If you have time, maybe you don't even cover the most traumatic events in, in that initial interview, and instead you just develop a rapport, explain your role to them, ensure that they understand confidentiality and the purpose of you working together, And maybe just discuss other topics of their case. If you are going to talk about a traumatic experience, generally it's best to keep it in the middle of the meeting and especially not towards the end because you want to end the meeting with something positive. So you might want to start the meeting with some easier, more straightforward questions and then also save time at the end for some lighter questions or to go over and find some documents or something like that just so that you're
1: making sure that the meeting ends on a positive note.
0: Thank you. That's great that you mentioned a specific resource. We can make sure to link that on the page where we post this. Finally, regarding trauma, what should a lawyer do if they are feeling out of their depth or they start to feel personally affected by their client's trauma?
1: So a really important part of this
2: practice is recognizing the impact that trauma can have on you as an advocate. Vicarious trauma or secondary trauma is very widespread among immigration practitioners. It can show itself in many different ways, including burnout, compassion fatigue, anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Um, there's a recent law review article that came out by uh, Lindsay Near harris and Hilary Millinger that details just how widespread burnout and secondary trauma uh, can be for asylum attorneys. And so crucial that you be able to recognize the signs of secondary trauma and be able to take care of yourself. And having a good healthcare routine is key to that and it's good, but you should also recognize when you need to step back and take a break from the work or when you need to reach out for help. And for a lot of practitioners, taking a step back seems to present a conflict with doing the work, especially given the needs for good lawyering and immigration law and just how many people are going through the immigration system who are unrepresented and and need a good advocate. But it really is essential for you to be able to continue doing this work effectively and to be able to do it over the long term. And So you have to know when you can take some time and step back when,
1: when you need to. All
0: right, thank you. Those seem like important reminders. To pivot a little bit, What goes into effectively communicating with a child client as a lawyer? And are there kind of specific things a lawyer should do or not do?
2: Yeah, so the central part of communicating with a client is ensuring that you're doing so in a way that your client can understand what you're saying. In general, you want to phrase questions as simply as possible try to avoid legal as much as you can, which I know is hard for attorneys, especially when we're explaining sort of complicated legal concepts. And then with younger children, you might want to use maps or drawings to, to assist in your communication with them. And this is also somewhere where you need to manage your own expectations and timelines. Uh, for example, if you're working with a, a younger client, you might have to have a lot more meetings with them. and might have to make those meetings shorter. Uh, one thing that's very important, not just working with young people, but with any client, is to be honest with the client and make sure that you're managing their expectations as well. Uh, so we can't promise a specific outcome in immigration court or guarantee that USCIS will grant their case. And for some forms of relief, like uh, SIJS or U-Visa, the case might be pending for, for years on end. And so it, it's important that you be upfront about what the possible outcomes are of the case, what the objectives are, and and what the overall timeline looks like and and what that means, because if there's any bad news, it will come out eventually, and so it's best to make sure that you are being completely upfront at at the outset. Similarly, you want to help to prepare them for what to expect in an immigration court or the asylum office, including who's going to be in the room, what their respective roles are, um, et cetera. Another important thing is to not uh, react to what your client is saying with any kind of judgment. Uh, you definitely don't want to judge something that your your client did. And even for something that they didn't do, you want to try to avoid including your own judgment. If the client tells you, for instance, that their parent hit them, you might want to avoid saying that that's child abuse if that's not the way that uh, the client has identified or framed it. So, for instance, um, you may have to talk about parents hitting a child in the context of of a SIDGE case, where abuse is an element of the claim. Um, But one thing you might want to do as you're explaining it is say something along the lines of, well, this is something that this state's law defines as abuse to make clear that it's not you inserting your own judgment into what happened.
0: How might a lawyer change their behavior when they're working with Uh, younger child client rather than an older child client or vice versa
2: so your communication style will really depend on who your client is and what their capacity is it's also important to keep in mind that a child's chronological age may be different from their developmental age so you may have two clients who are both 12 years old for example but may have to have very different communication styles with them because their developmental age is different Um, especially as I mentioned that trauma can have an impact on on development, especially for uh, young people who have suffered trauma, their uh, developmental and chronological ages may be very different. As I mentioned, for younger children, maps or drawings might be an effective way to to help communication, and there are a lot of ways to incorporate that. You can ask them to draw their family, for example, or or draw the house that they lived in in their home country. Another thing to be aware of is that can really affect the young person's needs outside of the legal case. So, a younger client caretaker may need assistance in getting them enrolled in school, or an older client may be living on their own without a caretaker and need help accessing services. An older clients may become involved with the criminal legal system or juvenile system, and you want to make sure that they know to tell you if something happens so that you can make sure that they can resolve that case in a way that doesn't jeopardize their immigration case. And um, Another area where age should make a difference is how much the young person's testimony will play a part in their case or how detailed their declarations might be. If you have an asylum case, for example, for a young child whose family is facing persecution, they may have a a general fear of returning to their home country, but not really have much direct knowledge of what's happening. And uh, adult family members may play a much larger role in providing the testimony and, and evidence for that case. On the other hand, an older client with a similar asylum case may have much more direct knowledge as to what is going on, and their declaration will be the most important part of the case. And then finally, you want to give as much choice as you can to the client, and for older clients especially, you may want to give them um, more options to list at their input and, and ask them to take on uh, more of a role
1: in certain parts of the case preparation.
0: How does this process of working with a child client change or not change when a translator is involved?
2: Working with a young person in a language in which they're fluent is a big part of client-centered practice and really is an ethical obligation to be able to effectively represent someone. Uh, So if you and your client don't share a language in which you're both fluent, then you need to work a lot of the times there are young people who may have some English proficiency and you might want to proceed in English or they're fluent in an indigenous language but have learned Spanish in school and so you might want to proceed in, in Spanish. But keeping in mind the state of an immigration case and just how crucial even minor details can be or how even a minor inconsistency or misunderstanding could lead to the young person's credibility being questioned, it's really essential to communicate with them in a language that they're fully fluent. And then when you're working through an interpreter, you want to set some ground rules ahead of time. You wanna make sure that the interpreter knows to use the the first person when interpreting, so using I statements instead of they said this. Uh, You also wanna let everyone know to speak in short sentences,
0: the ethical challenges when it comes to working with a child client?
2: There are a lot of ethical challenges that can come up working with a child client. A lot of the time, especially when you're representing a young person as well as their relative, for instance, if they're a derivative on a parent's claim, or if you're representing two siblings, it's possible that a conflict of interest can come up. And so knowing what your duties are, if there's a conflict, is essential. And making sure that the clients are advised about conflicts of interest at the outset of reputation is important too.
1: Uh,
2: You also wanna make sure that you're upholding your duty of confidentiality. Uh, If there's a part of the young person's claim that they don't want their parent or caretaker or someone else to know about, you need to make sure that you're respecting that. And then finally, one of the most important rules concerning uh, representing young people in particular, is the, the duty toward clients with a diminished capacity. So, even though a young person may have diminished capacity compared to an adult, you still need to make sure that you're maintaining an attorney client relationship with them to the extent possible. And that includes communicating to them about what's going on with their case and respecting their decisions concerning the
1: objectives of your representation.
0: Legally and ethically, how should an attorney be guided by their child client should they be focusing on what the client wants the child uh, or should they be guided by what they think is in the clients best interest
2: so legally and ethically we need to be guided by our client's stated interest we can't substitute our judgment for theirs or do what we think is going to be in their best interest and this can come up in a lot of different areas Uh, for example a young person who's detained may want to take voluntary departure, even if they're eligible for relief and have a very strong case, because they no longer want to be in detention. Uh, As the client, that's their choice. And even though we might disagree with it or wish that they would choose to stay and pursue relief, we can't make that decision for them. Uh, For clients who do need to have someone to advocate for their best interests specifically, there is an option to have a child advocate appointed for them. Uh, The Young Center, which is a great organization, appoints child advocates who can uh, advocate for what a child's best interest would be and prepare a best interest recommendation, which can be very helpful. But our role as attorneys is to abide by our client's stated interests.
0: Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or think is important for pro bonos or nonprofit lawyers to know when... They're just getting started working with immigrant children.
2: So I think the best piece of advice is to ask questions. Immigration law in general is very complicated, and even the most experienced attorneys aren't going to know about some things that can come up in in an immigration case. And uh, really the best way to learn is to talk to more experienced practitioners, because this is not something that anyone can be expected to figure out on their own. I was fortunate enough to start at a relatively large organization with a great team of advocates, and uh, I was able to learn a lot just by asking coworkers for help. I think most of my first six months at Catholic Charities was probably me asking my colleagues questions or observing them at, at hearings, and that's what really helped me get a lot more uh, exposure and,
1: and experience for my own cases.
0: Where can someone go if they're looking for more information about this?
2: So at the ILRC, we have a number of resources on how to effectively represent and advocate for young people in the immigration system. Our SIJS manual contains a lot of good information and tips on how to work with young people as clients. And then in addition to uh, covering SIJS, the manual also includes a lot of information on other forms of relief available to young people. Uh, we also have advisories and, and give trainings on this topic as well. Um, but there are also many other organizations in this space that have great resources. Uh, these include the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, Kids in Need of Defense, Clinic, ASISTA, uh, just to name a few. And all of these organizations leave trainings or, or publish resources that are very helpful. And probably locally, uh, you'll have uh, an immigration nonprofit in your area that specializes and working with young people and they'll probably either have some great resources for you to use or be able to point you in, in the right direction. And then, of course, if you're a pro bono and you're working with a mentor attorney, asking your mentor attorney for help with this is probably a great place to
1: start. Okay, well, thank you, Andrew, for your time and your insight.